Hello everyone, Tim here. Uh, we don't have time for a full questions and answers session this week, but we couldn't ignore all the great feedback we got from you about our last episode. So thanks everyone for your shares and ratings. We're thrilled so many people were interested in the subject and we'll definitely be following up more on the knowledge gap in future. There were two things too that loads of people pointed out to us, so I thought I'd better, better mention them. Uh, firstly, that the Scottish education system is of course different from the one in England. So lots of statistics that we mentioned won't apply there. If you have any comparisons between the syllabi in Scotland and England, please let us know because it would be really interesting to explore. Uh, secondly, I got one of my dates wrong. The Victoria statue wasn't actually removed from Dublin's government buildings until 1948. So shout out to Shane Hennigan on Twitter for setting us straight on that one. It really makes it even more interesting, actually, since, uh, of course, that was around the time that the Irish Republic was officially declared. Uh, so thanks, Shane, and thanks to all of you. Uh, let's get on with the episode. Hello, Ooh. and welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar, Fab, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello! Welcome back everybody to the Irish Passport. Did you, you recognise the sound of those bells? It's a familiar, it's a familiar sound, Naomi. Yeah, so if anyone spent any time in Ireland or you listen to Irish news, our public broadcaster uh, sounds this. It's called the Angelus Bell and it's sort of a symbol, I suppose, of, you know, the institutional embeddedness of Catholicism in Ireland. We played it because... Today we're looking at the Catholic Church and its relationship with Ireland, past and present. Indeed. Coming up on this episode, uh, Naomi's going to be talking to the now quite famous uh, local historian, Catherine Corliss, whose incredible revelations about secret burial sites in Catholic mother and baby homes was just the latest of many scandals to have recently rocked the church in Ireland. What really kept me going was, was the silence of people who should be helping. I should be giving me answers. The, I was being fobbed off the whole time. And I was being discouraged by people in power and people who should have been there to help. And, and that angered me and that I just had to. It, it just drove me to, um, to find justice for them. And we'll also be hearing from journalist Ellen Coyne about a recent maternity hospital row in Dublin, which has become emblematic of Ireland's backlash against Catholic institutional control. So the core of the problem is the Irish public would pay for this hospital to be built and then as soon as it was, it would effectively be owned by a religious congregation because it owns the land. Nobody ever anticipated the scale of the absolute uproar. We'll also hear from the senior doctor who resigned in protest at the plan. I felt it was wrong and I said that if this gets out into the public arena or when it gets out, people would not be happy with that arrangement and in particular, women would not be happy with that arrangement. 
Yeah, three great interviews coming along there in just a little bit. And in fact, there is so much to talk about in this episode that we've decided to make it a little bit longer than usual. But even at that, we've only really managed to look at a few facets on this uh, enormous theme. So we hope that you'll forgive us for everything we've had to leave out. Hopefully we'll be able to get around to a lot more that's connected to this in future episodes. Absolutely. So we're going to kind of park sexuality and we're going to kind of park women's rights, only just touching on them. We plan to dedicate entire episodes to those in the future. So we should probably start, I think, Tim, by stating this is quite a sensitive topic. And, you know, because it's a matter of faith, it's difficult for people to see beyond their own biases. So let's just state what our biases are to begin with. Yeah, fair enough. I think we should mention from the outset, it might be fair to say that neither of us are particularly religious. Yes, myself, I've never actually belonged to any church or religious institution. I did report on uh, the Vatican when I was a correspondent for Reuters in Rome. I I was in St. Peter's Square when Pope Francis was elected and when he came out on the balcony and that was like a really special moment that I'll never forget. This is to say that I'm not hostile towards religion, but I do struggle quite a bit with some of the basic tenets that are common to all faiths. Uh, In terms of my family background, my parents come from two different backgrounds. One is Catholic and one is Methodist. And they married at a time when that was a big deal. Essentially, I grew up without religion because they made an agreement between themselves that they wouldn't bring up the children in either religion. You know, we could decide for ourselves when we were of age. But we were culturally Christian, so we would have Christmas and Easter. The family story goes that my grandmother baptised me in the kitchen sink when I was a baby to stop me going to limbo. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one, actually, Naomi. I've heard I've heard these uh, stealth baptisms uh, being <laughs> <laughs> stories about that quite a bit by well-meaning grandmothers. So for my part, I was brought up in the Catholic tradition, but, and I think a lot of Irish people will identify with this, it wasn't actually a very religion-based experience. I mean, I know that must sound super strange. In, in my experience, anyway, uh, the religion gave a structure to local life, Uh, So mass and weddings and communions and and especially funerals were a kind of uh, social glue, uh, especially in rural areas where large groups of people uh, might not get opportunities to come together otherwise, you know. And in Irish villages, Mm. uh, there's very little public infrastructure. So the church kind of stood in for that uh, physically. Okay, so it has like a useful role kind of bringing it like bringing people together for occasions. Practically speaking, yeah, just to bring a lot of people into one room at one time. Uh, but Interesting. yeah, uh, as far as I could see, it was more about uh, social respectability, really, than it was actually about religious doctrine. Okay, so you're saying that even though people might be coming together regularly under the auspices of the church, they actually might not be that religious? I mean, I, I don't claim to speak for anyone else, of course, but this is what it seemed like to me. And not just in the church environment, even within the schools and within the institutional environment as well. It felt like, and I might have been imagining this, but it felt like nobody really cared if you actually believed in God or not, you know? Okay. <laughs> like it wasn't the point. That's what it felt like. Okay. Um, and, and then there was this odd mixture of disrespect and deference, which kind of went together. I think that really characterizes the Irish Catholic tradition. Right. That's such an Irish thing as well. Like deference to authority is not something that you will find easily in Ireland. Uh, Right. Uh, If if anyone's seen the sitcom from the 1990s, Father Ted, I think that really captures it, actually. It really captures that feeling of, of farce, you know. And that was a really real feeling to me anyway. It felt like everyone kind of had to humor these priests and nuns. Um, because they just had so much power. So I think in total, it's an important caveat 
to remember that that a lot of nominal Catholics, you know, wear and have always worn this identity very loosely. For, I don't know, for myself, I don't know about you, but I've come to the inclu- conclusion that religion and ritual and the structures of the church play a really important role in people's lives, you know, for, for humans, particularly at momentous times, like, you know, when you have to deal with a death or a marriage, uh, you know, it gives you a script and a sense of occasion. And mm. it's really important for people, you know, even if it might not be strictly rational, it's hugely uh, effective sure. in a way, you know, it works for people. Um, and also traditions are so incredibly tenacious, you know, and they're they're actually part of our heritage. They are ours. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, uh, that, that they are uh, ours in, in lots of ways. A lot of people who have left religion behind still only have these kind of milestones to work with. You know, they only have the First Holy Communion or the, or the marriage in a church or whatever. This is all they've ever known. And it belongs to them as much as anyone else, really. I mean, let's face it, a, a lot of these traditions all over Europe and Ireland included are, are pre-Christian anyway, you know. Like they were there long before the church came. And like you say, it looks like they're going to be there long before the church goes away, uh, long after the church goes away. Well, let's take a look at the figures on that. So according to the most recent census, which is from 2016, there are about 3.7 million members of the Catholic Church in the Republic of Ireland. So that's about 78% of the population. Yeah, and even though that's a massive figure, that's actually fallen quite dramatically uh, from right. a, a much higher figure of 84% uh, in only 2011 in the census. And before that, it was even higher. I mean, it's, it is the overwhelmingly dominant relig- religion in Ireland. But I think it is telling as well to look at mass attendance, historic mass attendance. Uh, today in the Republic of Ireland, there is one of the highest rates of mass attendance in the Western world. So about 46% of the Catholic population attends Mass weekly. Rewind to the 1970s, this would have been like 91%. Jesus. Which is just, it's amazing to think of. Yeah, it's pretty unbelievable. 91% of anyone doing anything really is is quite something. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, it also shows you how the percentage of Catholics in Ireland totally overshadows uh, other religions in the country. We're talking about the Republic, of course. The next biggest affiliation after the Catholic Church is the Protestant Church of Ireland. And that only counts about 100,000 members uh, in the Republic. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why the country has become so associated with Catholicism in the popular imagination. Yeah, it's kind of understandable, but it is a really ingrained cliche. Mm. Like the Irish priest or nun or or a policeman, Mm. actually, is definitely a stock feature in American pop culture, I think. Now, that probably did reflect uh, reality back in the mid 20th century. I mean, now we get a lot of priests from African countries and uh, places like the Philippines. But probably back in the day, you know, Ireland was a huge exporter of priests and nuns. And now if we look at today or our most recent figures in 2014, there were only five priests ordained in Mm. Ireland. Five. Yeah. I mean, I think that is an astonishing reflection of the turnaround that the church has had in recent years. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's it's fair to say that the, the stereotypes that go along with it have become long out of date, uh, really, for a while now. Uh, but uh, still in, in France, for instance, where I live, whenever you see an article about Ireland in the media, it's often introduced first and foremost as a strictly Catholic country. And this always happens, especially when the country is doing anything progressive, which uh, um, can be really reductive, you know, in France unrealistic. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Any cultural issue that's reported about uh, internationally about Ireland is always prefaced with majority Catholic Ireland or traditionally Catholic Ireland. It kind of bugs me because sometimes Catholicism is relevant to the story and is relevant to what goes on in Ireland and sometimes it's just not. Mm. And I also think it's really important to make a distinction between the church as an institution, you know, like a power Mm. and what people actually practice and believe. 
like paradoxically actually one of the reasons why the Catholic Church in Ireland has so often been in the international media these days uh, is because the country is in a pretty dynamic moment uh, in terms of its Catholic past. It's, it's a moment that's pretty dramatic actually and in some cases quite conflictual. Yeah that's true and not just in international press but also in Irish press. I mean issues to do with social ethical questions are often on the front pages of Irish newspapers now because this is a moment when there's a kind of a reckoning with that past. I think, you know, it's it's interesting. I think it's the generation that grew up uh, in a period of scandal for the church is now reaching a certain age. The seeds of this have, have been going on really now for about 30 years. If, if we think back to the 1990s, a lot of our listeners will remember when the Irish singer Sinead O'Connor ripped up a picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. And that was a massive scandal. I mean, it wasn't just a scandal in Ireland. It was a scandal in, in the United States. There were I think her tapes were burned in America and everything. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, steamrolled. People were steamrolling <laughs> them. You know, it, I mean, this was it was just such a, a shocking thing to do back then. But as an Irish person doing that, as a young Irish person doing that, I think she really represented the seeds of a growing number of people who represented, who resented, excuse me, the measure of uh, social and political control the church had, uh, especially at that time in Irish society. And that was that was way before the big, bigger scandals had even broken. Right. Uh, it's certainly something that I noticed growing up there, this palpable kind of streak of anti-clericalism, like uh, mm. priests were such a... I don't know. There was no one had a positive word to say about them. Mm. You know the song by Hosier, "Take Me to Church." Mm, That's such right. an interesting one. I remember when that came out, and just listening to those lyrics, to me, it really it was like a musical expression of that sentiment among the younger Irish generation. You know, rebelling against the strictures of the church, particularly regarding sexuality. Mm, yeah. Sure. I, I think the key moment really that we have to address is the gay marriage referendum of 2015. Yeah, right. And I mean, like, uh, we will probably harp on about this quite a bit in future episodes. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. And Irish people do as well. And it's not unfounded because this really was a game-changing moment and everyone felt it in 2015. It, it Certainly as regards the Catholic Church, it looked like a litmus test to everyone. Mm. It was like um, it, this was going to be one huge test to see if the old days were over or not. And if uh, this referendum failed, it meant that nobody had really moved on. And this was going to be a way to gauge that. Of course, during the campaign, Leo Varadkar, you know, the new uh, leader of Fine Gael, who's openly gay, I think he made his name a little bit in it because he came out on national radio. And that was like a d- defining moment of the campaign. Yeah, he was uh, health minister at the time, wasn't he? Uh, what was it like? 63% of people voted for equal marriage in the end. You know, a majority in almost every single constituency. It was in the 60s. I don't remember the exact figure. Uh, oh, yeah. Except for Roscommon, oh. that was like the one held out ca- county for all That was it. Majority in everyone except for Roscommon. Shame. 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 So uh, to me, as soon as that referendum was passed, instantly the question was, is there now going to be a row over abortion? Uh, you probably know that abortion is almost completely banned in Ireland. Um, there's a constitutional ban. I think that's going to be a harder fight to change than gay marriage, believe it or not. But mm. we'll park that and we'll deal with that properly in its own time. Um, but Tim, actually, I wanted to cover this early on. Can we just set out the historical reasons why the Catholic Church became so prominent in Ireland? Right. And I, I, I was kind of racking my brains about how to do this because it really is, it's a very long and to give it its dues, very illustrious history. Um, mm. But it would take us, you know, it would take us a, a 500 
page book to, to get through it properly. Uh, oh, so, that could be uh, a future project, Tim. <laughs> I'll leave it up to be better informed people than me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to bring it down to uh, a potted history, uh, I've decided to choose five landmarks in Ireland uh, that people might be familiar with uh, that I think kind of sum up Catholicism in the country. Okay, landmarks like buildings, like a potted history of Catholicism in, yeah, in more buildings. Or less. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how I do. Okay, right. Go so landmark number one is uh, Clan Macnoise. Uh, this used to be a really uh, huge tourist center, actually, but it's been a bit a bit, a bit abandoned in the last few years, which is a pity because it's really striking. Uh, this is uh, a monastery. Oh, it's yeah, it's the medieval monastery and it has one of those round towers, right? Uh, it's kind of a tourist brochure staple. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's very iconic. So I chose this building first to highlight that Ireland was, since the early Middle Ages anyway, uh, a very important country for the church. Um, because it became the stronghold of the Catholic religion during the Dark Ages. Um, When the rest of Europe fell to the barbarians after the collapse of Rome, the most precious Catholic manuscripts uh, were sent to monasteries like Clonmacnoise to be copied and kept safe. Oh, wait, okay, so I've heard this uh, said that the Irish saved civilization. Is that what they're talking about? Yeah, more or less, and it's not an understatement. So uh, to give you an example, you know, we wouldn't have things like the Iliad or the Odyssey uh, if they weren't kept safe uh, in these monasteries. Uh, But once this age begins to uh, recede, Irish missionaries went back into mainland Europe and started uh, promoting these books of philosophy again. Oh, wait, so they were like re-Christianizing everybody? More or less, yeah. If you go okay. to um, the Switzerland, for instance, there's, um, there's a, a city called St. Gall. That city was founded by uh, Irish missionaries in the Middle Ages. Okay, so like Ireland was like a backup copy of <laughs> Catholicism. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Uh, so this always kind of cast it as a very powerful connecting piece uh, to Western Christianity. And there was actually an entire sub-religion called Celtic Christianity uh, in the early Middle Ages. If anyone's ever seen the Book of Kells on visits to Ireland, you know, this is kind of symbolic of that branch of Christianity. Uh, but this was later suppressed actually by Rome because it was just too powerful. Right. Mm. Okay, so that's Clan McNoise. And I can see like this is perhaps where Ireland gets the name the lands of saints and scholars yeah so that's a monastery mm-hmm. uh, well what's your next uh, landmark Tim? okay so I'm ju- I'm jumping forward a thousand years <laughs> okay uh, and we're gonna um, look at the the mass rocks and these are actually quite intriguing uh, they're all over the country and they can be quite difficult to identify actually mass rocks mass rocks yeah in the 18th century for the entire century actually um, penal laws were imposed on Ireland kind of a, a tool of colonization uh, the Catholic majority in Ireland were forced to relinquish a lot of their civil rights to the Protestant elite who which was taking over the country at the time and Catholic worship and education actually had to be carried out in secret locations a lot of the time okay so wait these mass rocks then they're like um, makeshift altars oh yes exactly yeah okay okay and they're in fields and stuff right so uh, this was a way of an underground continuing of the religion that was being suppressed by these laws yeah it was and I think they're more important as a piece of mythology than they were practically speaking Um, because for generations afterwards you know people got to point to them and say that's you know that represents us that represents our oppressed identity. Oh, well, that must have been a really powerful symbol. I, I can kind of see how we had the development of a class identity, the impoverished, suppressed, but insurgent Catholic majority and a privileged Protestant ruling class who were loyal to Britain. I can understand why there's a kind of an, an underground but very strong association with of Catholicism with Irish national identity. Of course, that's historically inaccurate. That's one of my pet peeves, <laughs> but we're going to get to that later. 
Okay, Tim, what's okay. what's next? What's your next ill? All right, next up we have we have a, a big one. We have Maynooth, which is still standing. It's the biggest seminary on the island, and that was established in 1795. A seminary. A seminary, yeah. It's a seminary and a college, and they have a university there now as well, actually. Okay. Uh, so after the penal laws were repealed, uh, the church took back control in Ireland with a bit of a vengeance, really. The colonial administration realized that the Catholic Church was actually quite useful uh, in governing the Catholic Irish people. Uh, so, okay. so they gave them back, you know, a lot of control and allowed them a bit of a free reign. Uh, so for most of the 19th and 20th centuries, Maynooth College was um, home to this incredibly powerful Catholic hierarchy, which worked in tandem with the colonial administration. And later they worked with the independent state. Okay, so the British Empire sort of outsourced some of its ruling to the church. Yeah, not on any official level, really, but that's kind of how it worked. And they both had the same ultimate goal, really, which was, you know, gaining control of the majority. Okay. Maynooth exerted such social control and political influence, in fact, that in many ways, its hierarchy has been seen as a kind of shadow government in Ireland until recently enough. That sounds really spooky. Mm. The church did offer this whole infrastructure of education and social charity that really hadn't existed actually during the previous 18th century. So it, it offered also a kind of sort of alternative political system for Irish Catholics who were at that stage pretty disenchanted, as you can imagine. Uh, with their imperial rulers. Interesting. Okay, so we've done three. Uh, so what's next? Okay, so we're pulling up into more recent history now. Next up, I pulled out the uh, Garden of Remembrance in Dublin's Parnell Square. Uh, oh, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, this is one that people probably won't have been to because you could pass it very easily without seeing it. It's a memorial to various Irish rebellions, uh, including the 1916 Rising and the War of Independence. But if you go there, you'll see that it's all actually built around this huge water feature uh, in the shape of a cross. It opened in 1966. It was opened by Eamon de Valera, the Taoiseach at the time. And he was, of course, a veteran of the Rising himself. And in many ways, it kind of encapsulates de Valera's vision of Catholic Ireland. Like, how can we describe that vision that de Valera's Ireland? Yeah, like the words will, will strike fear into people. I mean, uh, not even to joke about it. Because the decades after independence are often considered as some of the most oppressive years of Catholic social policy. Book banning and all that kind of book thing. Banning and book burning and we heard about that in the Irish language episode a little bit. The church was given a central role in the identity that the new republic was building for itself and that's what this monument shows. Uh, in this period from my understanding of it, De Valera is kind of seen as perpetuating a very isolationist Ireland which was modelled on very idealistic notions about the past. I think it was a radio speech that he, he made in, uh, in the 30s or so that kind of sums up this vision that he had of like happy maidens and romping mm. children and uh, athletic youths, you know, happy in the fields. And I think some of these traditional ideas that he had about the family were actually written into the constitution, right? Mm. And that's part of the reason why it's taken many, many decades to legislate for things like divorce, mm. because that was actually explicitly banned, right? Right, yeah, exactly. Happy maidens, the, the irony of that, uh, and happy children hasn't been lost in, in recent decades. Because as it would turn out, of course, you know, that quite the opposite was often true. Uh, de Valera's 1937 constitution had really far-reaching consequences. Now, actually, it forbids any kind of state religion in the Republic officially. Curious. Yeah, curious. I mean, you wouldn't think it, uh, but, there, you know, officially Officially, there is no state religion in the Republic of Ireland, but then it does recognize it uh, at the same time this quote unquote special place for the Catholic Church 
in the Constitution. And like you say, since all these ideas about the family are written into the Constitution, it's really difficult to get them out again. Right, okay, so I can see he worked that in there. He got around the kind of secularist tradition of Irish nationalists, but still managed to Hmm. put the church at the centre. So that's kind of summed up in the Garden of Remembrance. What's your next building? Okay, right, so for the final one, this is the last one, I've picked out the Papal Cross in Dublin's Phoenix Park, and that commemorates the visit of John Paul II in 1979. Oh yeah, okay, so if you've been to Dublin, listeners, you might have uh, seen this one uh, over the trees. It's this huge cross that's like 35 metres high, and in the middle of a huge park called the Phoenix Park, which is close to the city centre. Yeah, and the size of it just shows you how important the Pope's visit was back in 1979. Over 2.5 million people went to church events set up for that visit that year. Uh, and wow. that, that's more than half the current population right now uh, in, in the Republic. And, you know, it would have been much more back then. So in a way, this visit kind of represents the zenith, I suppose, of Catholicism in the Republic of Ireland. It's quite interesting that this is a time when the church was, it was kind of having a progressive uh, rejuvenation, of course. You know, yeah. this is the... Yeah, the, this, was, this was the time of Vatican II. A lot of things changed in those decades, in the 60s and 70s. There was a lot of motivated, uh, very positive-looking young people, actually, in support of the church at the time. Absolutely. Well, they thought they were going to change the world, like, you know. It's kind of fits, it's like almost like, they're like hippies, you know. Yeah. For peace and love and caring for everybody. Absolutely, it's not unrelated at all. Uh, The journalist David McWilliams famously called the children born in 1979 the Pope's children, uh, Mm. because it turns out, for some mysterious reason, uh, the birth rate in the country soared um, uh-huh. a, a just about nine months after all of these mass meetings of 2.5 oh million God. people. Um, <laughs> we might uh, remember that contraception, of course, was uh, illegal at the time. Oh my God. Uh, and this was, incidentally, the first generation since the famine to increase the population of the country, actually, rather than decrease it. So, like, this had huge consequences. This, um, okay, so the Pope, like, actually genuinely did bless Ireland. I mean, uh, well, that's, that's the funny thing. He, he blessed Ireland with this massive uh, generation of young people all at once and then he cursed himself because that was the exact same generation that would see and see to the spectacular downfall of the church in Ireland. My god it's kind of poetic isn't it? Mm. Or Shakespearean. (laughs) Of course this is bringing us up to the more recent period which is a much darker history and it's really defined the Irish church in more recent times. It's been 30 years now of almost uninterrupted scandals coming out about the church and church institutions and it seems like each one is more gothic and horrific than the next. Yeah and we'll take a a more close look at the early emergence of these scandals later on Uh, but first one of the most recent and momentous scandals has in many ways probably been the most representative of how people began to wake up to the very dark realities of Catholic Ireland in the last few years. Naomi interviewed the local historian Catherine Corliss for this episode Uh, who exposed institutional abuse on an international scale a few years ago. In particular, she highlighted the extent to which Catholic institutions had buried their darker secrets, quite literally, uh, in the back garden. Before we listen to Catherine's stories, let's just explain exactly how the institution that she's talking about fits in 
to the Catholic Church's role in Ireland in the 20th century. What her research was centred on was a mother and baby's home. Now, some of our listeners might have heard already about Magdalene Laundries, uh, which we'll get on to later. But Magdalene Laundries aren't quite the same thing as mother and baby's homes, are they? Right. So they fitted into the same system, but they're different. So the tomb mother and baby home was originally a workhouse. So it was built to house the destitute during the famine. And after Ireland became independent, uh, it was taken over by the Bon Secours sisters, who are an order of nuns uh, who are trained as nurses. And they they turned it into a mother and baby home. That basically means somewhere that unmarried mothers could go to give birth. So maybe you can explain how they worked exactly. Okay, so young women would go there when they were pregnant and they would give birth there. And then they would stay there for about a year where they would work for the nuns unpaid. So the state was funding these institutions at the time to the tune about one pound a week per mother per child. And the mother would be separated from her baby and the baby would be kept uh, there in the home and raised until they were old enough to be fostered out or sent to industrial schools. So about the age of maybe seven. Mm. Um, Industrial schools, of course, are another kind of institution where abuse was rife, Mm. unfortunately. Um, sometimes if mothers were you might say repeat offenders mm. so to speak they, if they came to the home more than once to give birth then they might be transferred on to a Magdalene laundry yeah the the whole thing uh, until recently enough has been shrouded in taboo uh, it has been quite vague uh, I, I know that in certain families not even the close relatives would be fully aware of what was going on you know one day your sister or your niece or your cousin was just whisked away uh, without explanation and you might never see her again um, and God. the women were, were veritable prisoners, you know, during all this. I, I spoke to one family where the older brother found out, you know, against all odds where his sister had been sent. Uh, this would have been in the mid 60s. And he arrived there unannounced um, at the convent. And he said he was there to visit her. Uh, he said he had been sent by the family, which, of course, he hadn't been. And instead, he snuck her into the back of his car, drove her straight to Dublin and put her on a boat to escape. And I mean, I use the, wor- the word escape quite, um, quite literally to England, C- because if she had stayed in Ireland, she would have been sent back. She would have had nowhere else to go. And as it happened, of course, she never saw her baby again. When you were saying that, I actually got chills. Mm. Um, it's I mean, these stories are so shocking to hear. I mean, it's like a totalitarian world, like having to sneak his sister out of the country mm. in the back of his car yeah. like the it's just unthinkable you know of course the the whole issue of consent in a system like this is very murky one of the issues of dispute about the homes is you know whether women's babies were taken from them against their will some of the women who came through them say they were you know they didn't really have it wasn't their choice to give up their babies and there's also another uh, complicating factor is there was a demand from babies from families that wanted to adopt in the United States. So there's an old newspaper report from Tomb, for example, that Catherine Corliss unearthed. And it says that wealthy couples would sometimes come all the way from America to Galway to pick out a baby. God. And it also it, it describes the separation of the mothers and babies as being a very painful moment. Yeah, it's it's a deeply unpleasant chapter of Irish history and hasn't been accepted as a chapter of Irish history until the last two decades, really. It just wasn't talked about uh, for a long time. And now we have to accept that it has defined uh, the second half of the 20th century in particular. And it's left a lot of very damaged um, people in its wake, a lot of very hurt people. It's not pleasant. And Catherine Corliss got a lot of resistance, actually, just for talking about it and researching into it. So let's hear from your report. I'm Catherine Corliss from uh, Tuam, County Galway. Tuam is the town 
that has been on the news quite a lot because of my research, the mother and baby home in Tume, the survivors and the ones that didn't make it, those that uh, died. Here are a few facts about Catherine Corliss. She's a lady in her 60s who lives in a small farm outside Tume, a town of about 10,000 people in County Galway in the west of Ireland. She used to work as a secretary, but that was before she left work because she had four children with her husband. In recent years, sitting at her kitchen table, she began to research local history. She started with family history, and then she learned how to request documents from state bodies and how to find things in archives. There was a memory that she had from her childhood that niggled at her and that wouldn't let her rest. I remember the children going to school. As a youngster myself, I would have been about five or six years old. I'd just started the school in Tewham, uh, the Mercy Convent. And at the time, there were those little children um, at the school with us. We noticed them that they were quite thin and miserable and very quiet. And uh, they were kept apart from the rest of us. So that was uh, in my mind all those years. They were only in the Tewham school for two years. And then they just seemed to to disappear off the face of the earth. These were the home babies, the children born to unmarried mothers in the nearby Tomb Mother and Babies Home. She decided to solve the mystery of what became of them, the thin, miserable children who were kept separate from all the others in her school. I was a bit curious, first of all, because I went to my local library in Tomb and thinking I would get a wealth of information there, but they literally had nothing on the Tomb home. And even in the, uh, the microfilm, uh, of the archival tomb Herald, which is the local paper. There's very little on that either. The next, my next step then was to contact the Bon Secours Sisters. The Bon Secours Sisters, which ran the home, they still run healthcare facilities today. They're still around. They're not just in Ireland, but all over the world, from Peru to the United States. Her request to them came up empty. They said they had no records of the mother and baby home in tomb. So Corliss decided to change tactics. The tomb home where it stands, it was originally a workhouse. There was a lot of workhouses in Ireland at the time of the famine and right up to 1922. The workhouses catered for the poor and the infirm and uh, it also catered for unmarried mothers and babies. This this same building was used for the mother and baby home in tomb when the workhouses closed down. They just turned it into the mother and baby home and nothing else. They just catered for mothers and babies from 1925 onwards. Closed down in 1961 and... Uh, the whole area was left derelict and the building and everything just fell apart. And then the Galway County Council came in in 1972 where they decided to knock the home itself, the whole big massive building, and uh, they decided to put a housing estate on the ground. I just got the idea to talk to local people who live in the area of the, uh, on the Dublin Road where the, where the tomb home once stood. In the middle of the housing estate, on a patch of ground where the home once stood, there was a shrine. It was carefully tended, its grass carefully mowed, and flowering plants and bushes had been planted around a statue of the Virgin Mary. The local people believed this to be a burial place, and they had carefully tended it year after year. I got the story of it's that um, in 1975, there were two little boys playing in the area. It was a wilderness that time. Now the landscape was completely different than what we see today. They came across a sort of tank, and they broke open the slab that was on top of it. And what they saw was a lot of little skeletal remains and skulls. It, it didn't make sense to them that there would be children's remains there. Other people thought then there were unbaptized babies because um, at that time in Ireland, babies who were not baptized were not allowed into consecrated ground. They were sort of buried uh, in fields and in, in outlying areas. The locals had different theories about what the bones were. Some thought it was a famine grave. 
The sheer scale and pace of deaths during the Irish Famine from 1846 to 1852 was so heavy that mass graves dotted the country. But why were these bodies of children? Why were the skeletons so small? Without knowing whose bones they were, the locals decided to tend the area and keep it as a sacred space. So the locals decided, OK, there's children's bones here. We'll put it as dedication to them. And for 40 years, the, the locals in that housing estate just kept this little patch of ground just amongst themselves. They funded it and uh, just, just because there was children's remains and skulls in, in that area. While Catherine Corliss was talking to them, one of them made a throwaway remark. Uh, one person mentioned to me, he just happened to say that there's, there's more than famine victims there if they are famine victims. He said it's known that some of the home children are buried there as well. Now that's really what uh, niggled me at the time. And I did a little more bit of intensive uh, research then on the home itself because I was intrigued to know uh, why, why were those, all those little remains found there and how, how come to be all sort of in a mass grave area. It didn't make sense to me. Catherine Corliss redoubled her efforts. I contacted Von Scourge sisters again and uh, they had no uh, records of any children being buried there. Counted the Galway County Council on the ground. Uh, they had no knowledge of any burials there, they told me. Then I just thought of the Births, Deaths, Marriages Registration Office in Galway. Surely they, if, if children had died in the home that they would have a record of a death. That's how I found out that there were 796 children who died in the home between the years 1925 and 1961. She requested the death certificates, one by one, paying four euro for each one. There were 796. Each one was for a child, aged up to three years old. The causes of death were varied and mundane. Infections, malnutrition, one outbreak of the measles carried off 27 children at one time. Perhaps more important to notice than the overall number of the deaths is the rate. 1943 was a bad year. One in three children living in the home that year died. The following three years, the rate was one in four. An inspector's report from 1947 noted that some of the children were emaciated. During this time, the local county council was paying the sisters one pound a week for each mother and child kept in the home. It wasn't an insignificant sum in 1940s Ireland. Now the big question was, where are they buried? So nobody seemed to know. Um, the Bonscourt sisters again told me that perhaps the families uh, of the, the mothers who had the babies, perhaps, perhaps the babies' grandparents brought them home to their own uh, graveyards and buried them in, the, in their own plots. Now without even checking, first of all, I knew that wasn't, well, that, that, that wasn't an option. Because um, when those mothers were sent into the mother and baby home in the first place, when they were pregnant outside marriage, it was a crime nearly. It was frowned upon by the church. The women were ostracized. And it was an awful shame on the family. That's how they felt. Because um, it goes back to the church. They ostracized the women. They condemned them. They said they were sinners. And a lot of the parish priests wouldn't allow the women to stay in the village, even when they had their baby and tried to come back home. They were sent off again. So they, they, most of the mothers went on to England to work. Uh, they were more or less banished from their home place. So I knew bringing, uh, an, bringing an illegitimate baby back home to the village to bury it wasn't, wouldn't have been an option with families. Her next step was to check the graveyards. She took her list of 796 children and she began to cross-reference the names with local graveyards. She started in Toome 
and she went as far as neighbouring Mayo. All the, all the graves uh, in the cemeteries in the area, um, they, they're all recorded in a, in a cemetery book, babies and children and everybody. Two of the names from my list appeared on the cemetery record book and uh, I subsequently found out that they were orphans because the Tomb Home catered for orphans as well. So already you have the distinction that uh, orphans were buried in the main tomb graveyard in consecrated ground. She discovered orphans were buried in consecrated ground. Illegitimate children, born to unmarried mothers, were not. So where were they? Corliss turned to her next resource, old maps. I did a bit more intensive research then into the grounds itself, knowing that it was a workhouse at one stage before the, before, uh, the Bonscore sisters took over to run this mother and baby home. We're talking about the same building, the same seven acres of ground. I, uh, I, I, I went right back. I started studying the workhouse at the time. So I had very old maps. I had maps going back to 1840. I had uh, an account of the, the guardians of the poor who ran the workhouse at the time, but going back to 1840. And on their maps, I noted that there was a Victorian sewage system uh, underground for the workhouse. In the time that the workhouse was built, such places had their own sewage systems. Common public sewage systems only came later. There, there, were, there, were, there were big brick structures and there was tunnels leading to them. You could actually walk down the tunnels. That's how they were cleaned out at the time. And uh, the septic tanks that they had them, there were big vaults. There were brick vaults. And they were just, they were, they were about seven foot high and they were huge. So I knew then that where these boys found the bones in the 1970s, I knew from my old maps and from records that at the time of the workhouse and the famine, that this was a working sewage area. Later on then I discovered that in 1937, from archival newspapers, I noted that the sewage system that was in use up to 1937 was, uh, was closed down because the uh, Bonscore sisters in the home uh, a new system came in which joined them up with the main tomb sewage system. So the whole underground Victorian underground sewage system became defunct in 1937. All the research I'd done pointed to the sisters using this as burial vaults. This was the discovery that would lead to the headlines that reverberated around the world. 800 children buried in a mass grave in a sewage tank. The reaction was quick and from some quarters vicious. Local businessmen said Cordless was bringing a bad name on the town. Others asked why she wanted to dig up the past at all. Local police said that these were famine burials, ancient history. National and international commentators dismissed her research. But under significant public and media pressure, the government announced that a commission of investigation would be set up to find out the truth. And they sent archaeologists to start digging up the shrine where the children's bones had been found. They sent down the archaeologists and in March the 3rd, the uh, Minister uh, Catherine Zappone, the Minister for Family and Youth Affairs, gave the announcement on March the 3rd of this year that the Commission of Inquiry that the archaeologists had found a significant number of human remains and that the carbon dated it to the era of the Tomb Home when the children were there, uh, right up to the 1950s. They were able to do that. So uh, my research and my suggestion which I knew my heart and soul had to be true, was, uh, was uh, proven on that day. What have you found people's reactions to this story to be? 
Well, there was a, a shock. Some people, well, both people didn't want to believe it. The um, the church denied it because, and when I approached them, I asked them, did they know anything about those burials? The first reaction I got from the church, from the Archbishop in Tume, was that they had no nothing to do with the running of the home, that they would have no records as such. They, they more or less said they had nothing to do with it. But yes, a parish priest went up there every single day to the mother and baby home. He said mass there. He heard confessions. He baptized all the babies. And my question was, would a priest not have been there for the children who died? And would there not be a little blessing or just a final, just a little blessing at the end? Shouldn't there have been a medical report for each and every child? But uh, I was met with just uh, silence. I asked the county council as well about this graveyard. And when, when they sent in the, the builders in the 1970s, there, there's no records, there was no records of any, of any burials or anything. They didn't want to hear about it. Uh, I asked the Bon Secours sisters again, and they just said that whatever sisters were there at the time, they're gone now, and we have no records. We, we don't know anything about the tomb home. I, I would say it was mainly the business people of the town that frowned upon the whole idea. I was told I was giving tomb a bad name. That, and, why, and anyway, I was told, why am I doing this? It's so long ago. I reckon if the Bon Secours sisters were open and honest with me back in 2012 and told us about those burials and try to help and try to do something about it. Uh, this wouldn't have happened at all. It really wouldn't. What kept you going all that time? I think it was just, it's my nature to get answers. What really kept me going was, was the silence of people who should be helping. I should be giving me answers. The, I was being fobbed off the whole time. And I was being discouraged by people in power and people who should have been there to help, especially the church. I must say I was really saddened by, by their reaction. It, it, it was just as if things had never changed from the 1940s and 50s. These are illegitimate children. And uh, I mean to say it was kind of so what, kind of an attitude, move on. And, and that angered me and that I just had to. It, it just drove me to, um, to find justice for them because they, just, they literally had nobody. For now, Corliss is waiting for the coroner's report that will explain in more detail what the archaeologists have found under the ground in tomb. She doubts that all the children's bodies will be found in the septic tank site, as she believes from her knowledge of the maps that there are probably other locations where they could have been buried. I asked her what she thinks should happen now. There's a lot of, as we call them, home babies still around there in their 70s now. A lot of them have brothers and sisters buried there in that area. They want them removed out of it because it's, 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 they, they feel it's not a dignified burial. They want to know how they were buried. Was there any ceremony or were they just shoved down there uh, or just left there? And uh, they, they want they want them in consecrated ground. My argument all along was, I said, there are still people alive who were born in the home. They want answers. They don't know where their mothers have gone to. They were separated as babies from their mothers. The mother spent a year there uh, with the baby to breastfeed the baby. And at the end of the year, they were out the door, and that's, they were just separated. That was the end of the mother. And even around Tume alone, there are at least 50, if not more, survivors, men and women, who, who were born in that home. And some of them yet have to find where their mothers went to. It's just, it's a tragedy from one end of the whole thing to the other. And what do the survivors want? They're not looking for compensation. They're looking for, they're looking for answers. They're looking for an apology, first and foremost, from the church, from the Bonsecour sisters and from the state, because they were all complicit in this whole operation.
So uh, at the moment, a lot of these survivors are calling on me to ask me to help them to find to find some relative because a lot of them feel they're just alone in the world. And I have been successful on a lot of occasions in, in bringing uh, people together in, in finding information for them. And a lot of the time it's just, it's just a grave that they will find if their, mother, their mothers have died long ago. And that alone is, is, uh, is, is some, it's some little uh, comfort for them to know where the mother is buried. Thank you, Naomi, and thank you to Catherine Corliss so much for that report. I'm so glad she agreed to speak with us, and that interview was really something else. I'm so grateful for Catherine Corliss to, that she spoke to us. I was really impressed by just like her grit and her determination, you know, because she was met with silence so many times and criticism and general opprobrium, but she never let it stop her. Like she just kept up her research. She kept beavering away. It was really impressive. Mm. And she kept co- finding more and more creative ways to find to find the truth. Yeah, something sure. I found interesting actually in the story was the detail about how just privately on their own steam, the local people had maintained the site where the children's bones had been found. Yeah, they kept it as curious, a shrine and it? they planted the plants and they mowed the lawn and everything. And, you know, it was a sacred space for them. And also the demand of the survivors that their brothers and sisters be buried in consecrated ground. To me, it shows me that, you know, Mm. people aren't necessarily abandoning their spirituality or their beliefs or their religion at all. But there is a huge disillusionment with the church as an institution. And those things are separate. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It it says a lot, actually, doesn't it? So uh, it's important to remember as well that behind this this institutional scandal, there's all these private tragedies. The names of those 796 children who died at the Tomb Home between 1925 and 1960 were released publicly. And I personally know people who were rushing to that list to see if their brothers or their sisters um, or their whoever was on there. You know, you just, there was no other way to know. Um, The nuns in charge of this hospital have taken so much away from people and it's hard to imagine how any amount of compensation would be enough. And of course, you know, Corliss said they're not even looking for compensation. But just acknowledgement, you know, there are many people who came through these homes alive today, as she said, and many of them are hugely angry. I think a lot of the anger comes from the frustration of their attempts to find, uh, you know, truth about where they came from and to find family members. You know, there is this wall of silence and it's not just the religious institutions either. It's the state um, as well. Mm. This is. Corliss told me that this is starting to improve. She sees small signs of improvement over recent years. This culture of silence, you know, this unwillingness to acknowledge the issue of abuse on this dark chapter of history, 
I think this is really part of the building head of steam of anger about religious involvement in the provision of public services that has been building up in recent years. Right. And this brings us, of course, to the greater context, right? Because one of the most significant parts of uh, the Catherine Corliss story is that it came out just after decades of exposure of various abuses in various different institutions uh, run by the Catholic Church. I think it was kind of it all started in like the 1980s and particularly the 1990s, right? So maybe we can talk a little bit about that period. If we go back to this time, this was a time when the church was still heavily lobbying against contraception, which has only just become legal in the Republic. Uh, it was against divorce, which was, of course, illegal up until the 90s. It was also preaching against like the likes of unmarried couples and gay people and, uh, you know, against illegitimate children as well. Sure, right. And the church was pretty brutal in its authority on these matters. Uh, even in the 90s, it was not uncommon for uh, quote-unquote deviant members of the community to be denounced from the altar in front of everyone they knew, uh, especially in rural areas. And that was, at the time, a kind of a blacklisting, you know, um, especially for very devout Catholic communities, these people would, in some respects, become untouchables. I can remember vaguely that uh, the first kind of whiff of scandal that I can remember came in 1992. It was the Bishop of Galway, of course, um, Eamon Casey, and it, it emerged. He was quite popular, I think, and it emerged that he had secretly had a son with a woman in America. And he was using the collection basket funds to keep the whole thing under wraps. Sure, yeah. We were both, of course, very young children at the time. Um, I suppose I was one or two years older than you as well. I would have been about seven or eight. Mm. Uh, and of course, I lived in Galway, so it would have been quite centred there too. There was some kind of tangible disconnect that you could actually feel. You know, I remember wondering as an eight-year-old, why on earth everyone was so preoccupied with this? But the older generation were in this total state of incredulity. You know, they just couldn't believe that a bishop, not just a priest, but a bishop, had lied to them like that. Um, and at the time, that idea was just unheard of, because when these things happened, they were covered up. This was just an early sign of the scandals that were to come. It was just minor compared to the stuff that was going to come out in the course of the 1990s. We are, of course, talking about the spate of allegations of child sexual abuse in Catholic institutions that started to come out in the 1990s, leading to a series of criminal cases and government inquiries after that. And quite honestly, if you say the words Catholic Church to anyone under the age of 40 in Ireland today, that's the first thing that they're going to think about. A lot of this abuse took place in the state childcare system, which was outsourced to religious orders a lot of the time. So these children really were some of the most vulnerable members of society. They often had no parents to run to or anyone who would listen to them, just like Catherine Corliss says, um, a lot of these victims are, are the people who had nobody. Um, and the predators who took advantage of them were often priests uh, who held, like we just said, some of the highest authority in the community. Uh, remember that priests and bishops could ruin people's reputations with not that much effort uh, by denouncing them from the altar or, or uh, in other, by other methods. A lot of these children were too afraid to mention a word about what was done to them until well into their adulthood. And we don't have the time to go into each case here, but like it came out bit by bit that abuse within these uh, institutions had been systematic and it had been going on for decades uh, under people's noses and that there was also cover-ups. 
Sure, and these are cases of not just sexual, but a horrific, uh, violent and psychological abuse um, that was taking place uh, in these institutions. The details are just chilling, really. It's a pity that we don't um, have time to do them justice, but we, we decided that if we talked about one, it wouldn't be fair. Uh, so we, we've, we're not going to talk about any uh, in detail. But as people started to talk uh, more openly, it became clear that very few people in the older generation had been unaffected in some way by these abuses of one sort or another. And like you say, the most shocking element was the extent of the cover-ups. It became clear that abusive priests had been moved around to make sure um, that they couldn't be followed up on after complaints were made against them. Of course, alongside the mother and baby homes, like the one that we discussed, there were the industrial schools, uh, which there was a major report on. And, you know, these were kind of the weakest members of society, poor and orphaned children. And, uh, you know, the conditions in these places were just shocking. They were kind of run like Victorian institutions, but right into the 20th century. Perhaps the most notorious sort of institution that we kind of touched on earlier is the Madeleine Laundries. They began in the 1700s as a place to put called so-called fallen women. You know, that's kind of code for prostitutes, essentially. But they um, were expanded to be kind of warehouses for all sorts of women who were unacceptable in society for some reasons. Uh, the women kept in them were supposed to be penitent. Uh, they were supposed to be there atoning for their sins. And they were used as free labour, uh, as washerwomen by the orders. Um, it's important to note that there were Magdalene laundries all over the world, uh, not just in Ireland. And actually, uh, there were Protestant Magdalene laundries uh, also in Ireland and in England and in Northern Ireland. Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, I suppose the difference in Ireland really is the scale and the duration of this laundry system. I mean, if you look at how embedded it was, like institutions like the Bank of Ireland and hotels and government ministries and all sorts of institutions were using them, you know, for their washing. Mm. And lots of inmates were kept there until they died. And this isn't long ago history. The last laundry only closed in 1996. Yeah, which is uh, which is kind of amazing. Uh, you know, this was essentially a form of slave labour. Uh, the women were not free to leave. While the mother and baby homes sequestered women for uh, usually for one year, uh, in the laundries the duration was often indefinite. Um, and this was promoted, of course, uh, by the orders as a form of social care, but it was also uh, a straight-out form of exploitation of the poor. And working in industrial laundries without modern machinery, of course, backbreaking work, mm. which is important to remember. And when women did ex escape, they were often bought, brought back to the institutions by the police. So they had no protection from the state. And the only real escape was to somehow get out of the country. And of course, here we have the role of England, you know, being as a kind of a place of refuge for women, which it had acted as for many decades and perhaps even centuries in Ireland. Sure. The um, nuns' reactions, of course, to the allegations has been, you know, really difficult for people because it's been that wall of silence and it's been denial. Several advocates for the church, you know, still refuse to acknowledge that wrongdoing has taken place, if you can believe that. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing, really, that the Sisters of Mercy, uh, the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity, of the Good Shepherd, I believe, and the Sisters of Charity, which is a, a separate order, uh, all three of those uh, have, to this day, ignored requests uh, by the UN Committee Against Torture to contribute to the Compensation Fund for victims. Um, and there's about 600 of those victims still alive today. It's important to remember as well that the state is very complicit. And during the years after independence, it kind of outsourced whole swathes of social provision to the Catholic Church. Um, so, you know, the church was filling a need there in healthcare and education in particular. The state was often uh, supporting these institutions with funding and so on. The state as well has been in denial about this and the problematic aspects of this role. Right. But it has 
begun to be more forthcoming. Sure, yeah, it, it took up until 2013, in fact, uh, for the then Taoiseach at the time, Enda Kenny, uh, to apologise to the victims. At that point, he called the laundries the, quote, uh, nation's shame. And this reaction has been seen as a little bit too late by a lot of people. And of course, yeah, it's extremely difficult for children of the laundries to find out just who their mothers were. Right. Uh, And lots of our listeners will have heard about the laundries probably and other institutions like them through a number of films and documentaries. They kind of came out in a flood in the 1990s and 2000s as part of this kind of sense of outrage. Uh, So we might think of uh, Peter Mullen's Magdalene Sisters, uh, for instance, which um, that won the Golden Lion Award at the Venice Film Festival in 2002. Seems like a long time ago now. Mm. And um, Stephen Frears' Philomena, more recently, in 2013. Um, And that focuses on how the mothers and children are still dealing, uh, you know, in 2013 with the fallout of those institutions. I met the real Philomena, you know. Really? Yeah. You know, she went to Rome to meet the Pope. Um, Yes, of course. And uh, I kind of covered that. And she's just like a very ordinary, kind of shy, quiet Irish lady. And how has she she reacted to her her international fame in that context? I mean, she's very humble, you know, and she was, it was really meaningful for for her to meet the Pope, Mm. you know. That's interesting that Um, she was at the Vatican even after all that. Well, yeah, it was, you know, part of kind of the atonement process, I suppose, for the entire Mm. thing. Essentially, if you haven't seen the film, uh, it's dreadfully sad because she searches for the son that she lost in one of these institutions that was taken away. And unbeknownst to her, he's also looking for her. Um, In Ireland, you know, there's there's huge public outrage about all of this. And I think it's been building over recent months and particularly it comes out in issues to do with healthcare, for example. Right. Outrage has reached this boiling point when everyone's mouth more or less fell open uh, when it emerged that the state was going to gift ownership of the new National Maternity Hospital to the Sisters of Charity. Right. So this is one of the institutions which owes money to victims and hasn't paid. Mm -hmm. And that would represent an investment of 300 million euro of public tax funds that would be transferred over to this religious institution. Yeah, this is the same Sisters of Charity who have been ignoring demands for redress from the UN Commission Against Torture. Uh, This is an order who were exposed in the 2009 Ryan Report into child sexual abuse as having presided over decades of abuse in laundries and industrial schools. Um, They have to date only agreed to pay 5 million euros of the state's 1.2 billion euro redress scheme for victims of abuse. And they have actually only paid 2 million of that. They've refused to contribute a single penny to the 128 million euro fund that Catholic institutions agreed to pay abuse victims in 2002. The Sisters of Charity, it might be noted, um, like we said earlier, never issued an apology to their victims. Let's hear how the scandal over in the National Maternity Hospital broke out. First of all, let's hear from Ellen Coyne. She's the journalist who in March broke the story that the religious order, the Sisters of Charity, was going to be given full ownership of the new National Maternity Hospital. My name is Ellen Coyne and I'm a senior journalist at the Ireland edition of The Times. Ireland desperately needs a new National Maternity Hospital. Our existing one is actually in the middle of Dublin city centre, actually just the street behind where I am now, and it is tiny and it is cramped and it's terrible. So for over a decade, uh, the government has been trying to build a new one. Now, there was a really long dispute because the existing National Maternity Hospital um, and St. Vincent's, which is owned by a religious order, couldn't agree on the governance of the hospital. So both sides wanted to have more control. Early this year, then, it emerged that actually 
the physical land at the St. Vincent's campus where the new maternity hospital will be built is actually owned by a religious order, the Sisters of Charity, which was involved in some of the institutional abuse. So the core of the problem is the Irish public would pay for this hospital to be built and then as soon as it was, it would effectively be owned by a religious congregation because it owns the land. Nobody ever anticipated, and that includes the people writing the story, um, and I include myself in that, the scale of the absolute uproar. I don't actually think the outrage was actually about the story itself. I think it had been building up for a really, really long time. Um, it was coming up again with Tomb. It was coming up with the Eighth Amendment issue. It was coming up with the failure of the religious organisations to pay the state what they owe to compensate victims. And I think that if it hadn't been the National Maternity Hospital story, it would have been something else. After news of the deal became public, Dr Peter Boylan, who's a former master of the existing National Maternity Hospital, spoke out against it. I'm Dr Peter Boylan. I'm chairman of the Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists and the governor of the National Maternity Hospital. I felt it was wrong, and I said that if this gets out into the public arena, or when it gets out, as it would inevitably, people would not be happy with that arrangement, and in particular, women would not be happy with that arrangement. And I just thought it was fundamentally wrong, because it wasn't only just the ownership of the hospital, but it was the ownership of the special company set up to run the hospital was to be owned 100% by the Sisters of Charity. And I think it would have been a real problem for the sisters as well to own a hospital where things were going on to which they were fundamentally opposed. And it was also kind of, I think, unbelievable to expect that they, that they would uh, just basically allow it to happen, despite no matter what legal arrangement you've got in place. It just didn't make any sense. Dr. Boylan, what kind of effect does Catholic ownership or ethos have on the provision of maternity care in practical terms? Religious influence um, has no effect on clinical practice in things like general medicine and general surgery. For example, with a a hip replacement operation or gastric surgery or cardiology, Um, in none of those areas does Catholic teaching have any, is there any problem with it at all? It's only in the interface between obstetric practice, maternity care, and Catholic Church teaching that there are problems with conflict. For example, in Catholic hospitals, though, you you couldn't um, prescribe contraceptives for contraceptive purposes, and there'd be no question of doing, you know, elective um, sterilization operations. So that's the sort of way that it influences. That's why maternity care needs to be completely independent of any possibility of of, uh, influence. And it's not to, to sort of underestimate the tremendous work that the religious have done over the years because the state effectively abrogated uh, or abdicated its, its uh, duty of care to citizens, in, both in education and in health, and handed over these to the Catholic Church for the vast majority. Uh, so there's very strong historical reasons as to why we've got this hangover. But it's time now in, in health, you know, to have separation of, of church and state. There was a surge of anger when the deal became public, just as Dr Boylan had thought. Over 100,000 people signed a petition against it, which is a lot for Ireland, and there were public protests. I asked him why those who agreed to the deal, like the Sisters of Charity, the Board of the National Maternity Hospital, and indeed the Irish Ministry for Health, didn't see the public uproar coming. I think they're just so desperate to get the new hospital uh, that they were willing to put up with the the arrangement, uh, even though it would have made... The National Maternity Hospital unique in the entire world 
uh, will be the only hospital owned by a Catholic uh, organization that would be allowing contraception, sterilization, abortion, IVF, etc. So um, I think they just convinced themselves that these special powers uh, that were uh, written into the agreement would be sufficient to protect clinical independence. I think they were just blinded by their uh, wish to get the new hospital. And also they, they weren't listening to public concerns. You know, there was a, there was a, as you know, there was a petition signed by over 100,000 people. So public feeling was, was pretty clear, um, you know, that they didn't want this to go ahead. At the height of the scandal, Boylan resigned from the board of the National Maternity Hospital, saying it was untenable for him to remain on the board when it was, in his words, blind to the consequences of giving ownership to the Sisters of Charity and deaf to the public outcry. Ellen Coyne told me that in her view, it wasn't just this story in itself that caused the reaction. It was the context in which it came, just after the revelations about the tomb mother and baby home, and amid a burgeoning national debate about whether abortion access should be widened, and with the public well aware that such religious orders had still not given full compensation to victims of abuse. In, in one sense, it's an unusual thing to cover because a Catholic influence in Irish women's health is actually not, in general terms, something new. It's not really a news story. What's changed is the public perception and um, a kind of eagerness on behalf of the general public in Ireland to actively separate church and state, starting with their record on women. Society in Ireland has changed so dramatically and is getting really restless with the idea that the church is still exerting control over women and children, which it has such a terrible track record with in the past. In the wake of the scandal, the Sisters of Charity announced that they would divest from their involvement, not just in the National Maternity Hospital, but from healthcare altogether, meaning that they would give up the three other hospitals that they own. I asked Dr Boylan for his reaction to that. Well, I think um, in the future that any new investments should not be granted to private organisations. So if, if hundreds of millions of public money are being spent on building a new hospital, then I think the ownership of that uh, should rightfully be in the in the hands of the state. Now, how you what sort of governance arrangements you make is another question. The fact that Sister the Charity have withdrawn and have said that the Catholic ethos specifically will not uh, no longer be the sort of governing principles in St Vincent's Healthcare Group, I think that's very positive. In the early days of the state, the, the state didn't get involved in, in healthcare to the extent that it should have done and left it to the religious. But now that the state is involved and is funding healthcare and so on, their, their mission can be directed elsewhere. And that's appropriate. That's what happens with the passage of time. Ellen Coyne told me that the sheer complexity and scale of religious involvement in healthcare and education means that divestment would be the work of lifetimes rather than decades. But she did say that she, she feels some change is in the air. Just going back to the foundation of the state, immediately Ireland became a theocracy. And what a lot of people used to do as well at that time was if they died, they would hand over huge swathes of their land to the Catholic Church. So from that point on, they were just collecting. It is it is a huge amount of, um, it, it, just in terms of assets, it's absolutely massive. You would be trying to unravel centuries and centuries of involvement. So while I don't think 
will ever maybe in your lifetime or my lifetime be at a point where none of the religious or health institutions are owned by religious institutions in Ireland anymore. I think what you might see is a change in public policy that would maybe separate uh, the church and the state in a less obvious way. So maybe legalising access to abortion in certain circumstances or making sure that there is no um, religious discrimination available, that there's more secular attitude taken to our education as well. Of course, like some of you will have picked up from that report, one of the reasons why this whole issue is so urgent is because everyone is expecting a referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Right. Now, for people who are not aware, this is the amendment to the Irish Constitution that imposes heavy restrictions on access to abortion in the Republic, some of the heaviest in the world, in fact. Yeah, so it's been kind of an international cloud over Ireland in recent years. So it's basically a bad law. It doesn't achieve what it wants to, which is to stop women from having abortions. They just go to a different jurisdiction, mostly England, to get them. And it causes various kind of grotesque cases um, to occur, uh, you know, because of the constraints on healthcare. So, for an example, there was an asylum seeker who was raped and she was forced to carry the baby until it was developed enough to be removed in a caesarean against her will. And there was another woman who was clinically dead and she was kept alive as a sort of an incubator for her fetus. And of course, there was Savita Halapavanavar who was miscarrying and she went to a hospital in Galway and requested an abortion, which was denied. And she subsequently died, which caused an international furore. So the UN has actually condemned Ireland for cruel and degrading treatment of women regarding this law. And it's, it's urged Ireland to reform it. It's all down to this amendment, which was inserted into the Constitution in 1983. Right. Uh, the amendment explicitly recognises a right to life of the unborn and says that the mother has an equal right to life. The fact that this is written into the Constitution means that it can only be taken out by national referendum. And this is something that politicians in Ireland have been trying to avoid now for decades because it's uh, going to make whoever does it uh, probably quite unpopular. And that has led to a lot of outrage in itself. Yeah, any politician who takes it on is basically going to split their electorate because it's such a sensitive issue. People are passionately in favour of keeping uh, restrictions on abortion as well as passionately against. So, you know, for all the progress that Ireland has made in the recent few years, it looks like repealing this amendment is going to be a much tougher fight than the fight to equal marriage, if you can imagine that. You know, it's such an un- a complex and an important issue. We've decided to park this whole issue of abortion and the repeal the eighth movement to look at in more detail in a future episode. Okay, right. Tim, do you think that this transition, like this period of conflict over the Catholic heritage of Ireland. Do you think this will mean a kind of new interrogation of what it means to be Irish? That's a a really interesting question, actually. Like, of of course, historically, there has been a tendency to associate those two things, like Catholicism and Irishness, particularly Irish nationalism. I got frustrated with it, as you know, because it's but it's definitely there. It's definitely a thing. Yeah, it is definitely a thing. And it can be especially strong in romanticised images of Irish rebellions, um, often among the diaspora. Yeah, you know. but we should say that it is bullshit. <laughs> Naomi, we'll, we'll lose our PG writing. Did we ever um, have that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we have. Uh, but yeah, it's actually extremely misleading, indeed. Uh, like we've mentioned before on the podcast, religion was often overused, ha- is often overused, really simplistically to characterise the conflict between Ireland and the UK. And this was no more simple in the past than it is today. Yeah, so like to see Irish nationalism as a Catholic movement is just completely historically illiterate. I mean, many of Ireland's greatest historical patriots were not Catholic. 
you know, like you just look at 1798. Right, the, the massive 1798 rebellion, uh, which followed the French Revolution, it's one of the most uh, symbolic Irish rebellions in the narrative of Irish nationalism. And not many people realise um, or appreciate that right from the beginning, the Republican ideal of the 1798 rebellion was this staunchly secular one, you know. Right. It was, um, and it was more often than not spearheaded by Protestants, actually, not Catholics. Wolf Tone, father of Irish Republicanism, as he came to be known, was a Protestant, as were the founders of the United Irishmen and the Irish National Assembly that they created. Um, the 1798 rebellion actually first broke out mostly in Ulster, in Protestant Ulster, and Catholic participation actually came a while afterwards. Right. So I kind of actually do this to people. I, you know, just reel off lists of non-Catholics <laughs> who were finding, who were founding Irish patriots. You know, like Robert Emmet, or pretty much any aristocrat right. that was involved in the 1916 Rising. They were all Protestants. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who ran the guns into Ireland uh, for that rebellion were mostly middle-class Protestants. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And actually, I mean, the ideal of nationalism that was founded by, uh, let's say, Wolf Tone, for instance, this was very much uh, an alternative to religious identity. Uh, So Wolf Tone, if uh, I mean, I don't remember the quote properly, but he says something like, the odious distinction between Protestant and Presbyterian and Catholic needs to be uh, put down and that everyone needs to share this common sacred title of Irish so he actually replaces right I remember that quote yeah it's a famous quote from him from his speech on the dock he's replacing religious identity with national identity so it's a real misrepresentation to characterize the Republican tradition as a Catholic tradition yeah I mean you can understand people's tendency to think in this way you know it is understandable and it's complicated by the fact that in Northern Ireland those who identify as Irish are referred to in shorthand as Catholics very often and sometimes you know they refer to themselves that way too my experience though is that if someone starts talking about uh, you know in quotes real Irish people being Catholic it's a sign of ethnic chauvinism combined with historical ignorance and (laughs) unfortunately it's something that is an issue with diaspora communities in particular and anywhere really where Ireland is being viewed from abroad you know in Ireland as we've discussed the reality of Catholicism and people's relationship to it is rather more complex yeah you, you said it complex is the word and listen we have definitely run out of time at this stage this is a massive topic like we said at the beginning that it's we've huge. just brushed the surface of just to remind you we will come back on some of these big issues in the future and if any of them you would like to look at in particular do let us know because we'd love to hear from you but for now thank you so much for listening and don't forget to review and share the podcast with your friends if you liked it yeah absolutely we really appreciate every review and we rely on your recommendations to spread the word about our podcasts So next week, we'll be looking at the intriguing and unexpected world of Irish elites. We'll be looking back at the old colonial elite known as the Ascendancy, who had their own unique culture, and some of whom are still haunting their country estates. Uh, We'll talk to Patrick Cooney, who made waves with his documentary on the surviving Ascendancy called The Raj and the Rain. Each one of them had a great-great-great-grandparents who had mortgaged the house and had set up soup kitchens to save the Irish. And I kept hearing this all the time, and I thought to myself, well, if there were so many of these uh, aristocrats wanted to save the Irish, why did a million die, and why did a million emigrate? We'll also be looking at who the Irish elite are today, and why they've always looked to New York rather than to London. If you have any comments or suggestions or remarks, we'd love to hear from you. Get in touch. We're at Passport Irish on Twitter. Or you can send your questions to theirishpassport at gmail.com. And of course, you can find all that information and links to subjects related to what we're talking about on the show on our website, www.theirishpassport.com. Thanks so much for joining us.